0: Well, we're in the middle of a uh, study that we've called Psalms for Supernatural Living, and we've been studying uh, various psalms and learning application for our lives, and and we've learned a lot of them. Some of them we have juxtaposed those psalms over the life of David, and uh, and and that's helped us to understand the context of them when we put them in the context of David's life. And uh, for, for I don't know about you, but for me, I've gleaned much from that, and. And those Psalms just came alive for us. But there is a group of Psalms that we're going to talk about tonight that, that largely remain closed to almost all readers, be, even those that are serious about reading the Bible with regularity. And these are the Psalms that are known as the Psalms of judgment or justice Psalms. They're, they are not happy, lighthearted Psalms. They, they are difficult to read. They are Difficult to understand; they, they're difficult for us to be able to justify with our New Testament understandings of forgiveness and peace and pursuing holiness and going the second mile and and the, as Jesus taught, turning the other cheek. They just don't have that that kind of a ring to them at all, and therefore they they largely uh, remain unread and unstudied and and unapplied in our lives. We're going to start with Psalm seven. And, uh, and tonight is, we're, we're going to talk about several of the psalms that, are super, that talk about supernatural justice. So turn in your Bible to Psalm 7. This is a psalm of David. There are 17 verses, and I'd just like to read through the psalm with you and, and have you follow along with me. I'm reading from the modern English version. It says this, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear my soul like a lion, rending it in, in pieces while there is none to deliver. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in the, in the palms of my hands, if, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have delivered my adversary without cause, then, then may the enemy pursue my life and overtake me. May my enemy trample my life to the ground and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O God, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up because of the rage of my adversaries and awaken yourself for me. You have commanded justice. The congregation of the people surround you. Return above it to heaven's heights. The Lord will judge the peoples. Grant me justice, O God, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. May the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you vindicate the righteous one. You are a righteous God who examines the minds and hearts. My defense depends on God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and God has indignation indi- excuse me, indignation—every every day. If one does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows flaming shafts. The wicked man writhes in pain and iniquity. He has conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He who digs a hole and hollows it will f- then fall into his own pit. His mischief will return on his own head. His violence will descend on the crown of his head. I will thank the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the, of the Lord Most High. This is a, this is a diff- difficult psalm, isn't it? I mean, you read that and if you're like me, you say, is this the same guy that wrote Psalm 23? You know, because Psalm 23 is just so beautiful and poetic and gentle and flowing. And then you read this, it's, it's, you wonder, is this the same author? And it is. It is. And so we just pray the Lord will help us tonight. You know, I remember uh, years and years back, some of you are old enough to remember this, and some of you won't admit that you're old enough to remember it, but you, but you are. Uh, but I, I remember way back in the dark ages, uh, there was a comedian named Pigmeat Markham. And he recorded a song called "Here Come the Judge," and then Sammy Davis Jr. He made the first ever meme out of it on, uh, on in on Laugh In, and uh, you know. But the fact of the matter is, when we talk about judge and we talk about judgment, uh, that word can mean different things to the person that is saying it and to other people who may be hearing that word. So, for example, when you're in a courtroom and you and someone comes in. They open the door and they say, all rise. The, the, His Honor Judge Wilson or whatever is presiding. And there's somebody in that courtroom that says, thank God the trial is finally about to start. We're going to get some justice. And somebody else in that room says, oh, this is the day I've been dreading. Somebody else says, "It's now it's time for me to earn my pay. Somebody else in the room says, "All right, let's just get this over with." Somebody else says, "I'm fearful above all things of this judge, and somebody else says, "I'm just so glad that he's arrived he, uh, he's arrived. You see, how you view the judge largely depends both on where you stand and in how you stand in relation to the judge And you know you know one reason why the, uh, the why the judgment psalms remain a closed book to most modern Christians is because We view the word judge and we view the word judgment as it is translated in most contemporary scriptures from King James Version onward. Because we view the ideas of a judge and of judgment from a Western point of view and not from an Asian point of view. And I've talked about this before when we were teaching about some of the other Psalms. We've got to remember that the Psalms were written by an ancient Middle Eastern Jew. And, and therefore, they are not written from the perspective of the, uh, from the uh, Western Greek culture from which we spring. See, to, to the Westerner, when we think of a judge, we think of a man or a woman that just, that sits in a courtroom, you know, and he or she is one who hears the case, they try the case, they, they, they discern what is, what is the truth, and then they try to do what is right. They, they hear the evidence and they're they're sort of like a a courtroom referee, but that's not how the ancient view saw a judge the the word that's used in Hebrew is shafat and, and although it it can it does include the meaning uh, in its meaning the idea of uh, one who presides in a courtroom uh, and one who brings justice it's it's almost never used that way in the old testament it's used more often in the in the sense of the book of Judges. See see, that's an interesting uh, book for us because we read it and it's, we, it's the book of judges but none of the people in the book of judges are judges. You know it's full of judges that are not judges because we're expecting people in long black robes that are presiding in courtrooms. But Samson and Jephthah and Deborah and Barak and Gideon, none of these are judges in our sense of the word. They are champions. They are defenders. They are deliverers. They're the ones that put things right. And, and see, the, the word in in Hebrew means to take that which has been knocked asunder and to set it upright again. So, for example, if there was an altar that had been dismantled and you're going to rebuild it, you could say, using the the Hebrew concept of the word, you could say that you were that when you rebuilt it, that you judged the altar. Another way to say it that maybe makes it a little more clear is that he came in judgment on behalf of the altar. That it means that he reconstituted it, he re- reformed it, he restructured it. You you might say that God raised up the judges to rebuild the nation of Israel from time to time when it was suffering under the Midianites or suffering under the Amorites or suffering under the Hittites. And then he would raise up a judge at a particular time. And when it says, for example, and Gideon judged Israel for 17 years, it doesn't mean that he judged them in the sense that he looked at people and said, you're guilty and you're not guilty. That's not what it means. It means that he judged, he, he judged for them. He came as their champion. He came as their rebuilder, as their defender. You might even go so far as to use the word as he was, in a sense, their savior. Probably you could say that the word uh, uh, that it's translated is four or five different words as protector, or defender champion or savior savior and if you take all those words and and add them together i've tried to think of the best english word that i could think of that might be a better better translation than the word judge for the hebrew word shaphat and i think the best word in contemporary english uh, it would probably be the word redeemer redeemer the book of judges probably should be translated as the book of redeemers or, or the book of champions. Uh, a, a judge was the one to, to set it right. And now this can be used in a, in a messianic sense. That is to say it can, it can have to do with the ultimate restorer or, or the ultimate redeemer. Uh, the one who will finally restructure with a new heaven and a new earth. And, and if you turn to Psalm 72, you'll see it used in that sense. Psalm 72 verse 1 Says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains bring well being to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he judge the poor of the people. May he save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you as long as the sun endures, and the sun and the moon throughout all generations. May he descend like rain on the mown grass, says as uh, showers dripping on the earth in his days, may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, what he is talking about here is speaking of the kingdom age to to come that will be under the direct rule and reign of the ultimate judge. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, may he rule until the moon doesn't even exist anymore. It it, it says in the Bible that that Jesus will come as judge. Now, does that mean that he will judge and that he will condemn to everlasting damnation those that are in rebellion against him? Yes, it, it does mean that. However, it also says, as we read here, that he will judge the poor. Does that mean that he will condemn the, the poor and the oppressed? No, because in this context, he's using it in the sense of judging on the behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And he will, he will lift up the oppressed, he will break the oppressor, he will set things right. And it's and it's really important for us as we look at these, at these Psalms of Judgment, these justice psalms, to make a distinction between when that word is being used as uh, like a courtroom judge and when it's being used in the sense of a redeemer. Now, now in my opinion, there are several psalms that fall into the category of judgment psalms. Psalm 7, Psalm 10, uh, 37, 43, 50, 58, 68, 73, 82, 137, and Psalm 139. In, In my humble opinion, I think these psalms are all appropriately appropriately categorized as judgment psalms. Now, don't worry, we're not going to be looking at every one of those tonight. Some of you are thinking, we're never getting out of here. But the, the first way in which the idea of judgment psalms are important to us, it has to do with the idea of social justice. Now, social justice is a term that's become very popular in usage over the last several years, especially, but it's but it's largely an unfamiliar theme in the contemporary church. It's even more unfamiliar in the evangelical contemporary church, and it's even more unfamiliar in the evangelical Pentecostal contemporary church. You see, somewhere along the line, we decided that there was a difference between personal salvation and personal piety and, and social justice and racial justice and justice for the poor, and justice for the oppressed and justice for the needy. H- however, that, that separation is totally inappropriate in the face of the whole counsel of Scripture. In fact, the great revivals of God in the past have always tied these two great themes together. That, the, the, that those who seek personal salvation and a personal relationship with God, if they are mindless and careless, and and thoughtless of those that are oppressed and the downtrodden of of their society, then their pursuit of personal holiness, their pursuit of a personal relationship with God will, to one extent or another, be hindered and dwarfed. The greatest example of this, maybe, uh, would be uh, when these two things were brought together in a single confluence of power was the, the Wesleyan revival in England. The Wesleyan revival in England brought together John Wesley's great emphasis on personal salvation. John Wesley believed and he taught this. It was was, was fundamental to his doctrine because he believed it was fundamental to Bible doctrine. He believed that every person ought to have the full assurance of his or her own salvation by faith and he preached salvation by faith. If you took everything that John Wesley preached and all of John Wesley's theology and you boiled it for a million years and then the cream that would rise to the top of that would be salvation by faith. Nevertheless, in the face of that, when he began to sort of awaken in his own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he began to realize that the scriptures were filled with references that said things like the poor heard him gladly and had references to caring for those that were in need. So so it was for John Wesley personally. His ministry constantly took him to the coal mining pits of England. He brought about changes in social law. He brought about changes in child labor law. He brought about changes in, in social welfare, well, welfare. He he protected the poor. He raised money for orphanages. He, and, what he, and I love the way he, he worded this. He always saw these two things as being the two hands of a single body. And so it is in Scripture. The, the Old Testament prophets do not... Nearly so frequently indict Israel for its personal immorality. Now it, they do; they do address personal immorality to the Israelites very often. But more often than that, they they address uh, the 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 they indict Israel for its oppression of the poor. And that's not preached very much nowadays. The the prophets, when you read them, they're filled with references of God saying to the people things like, "Because you've you've made bondage, because you've you've made merchandise of people because you bought and sold children. You, you've done that which is evil to oppress the poor. You, you have preyed upon the poor. It's, they're filled, the Old Testament prophetic books are filled with that kind of language. And, and the New Testament even touches on it. You read the book of James, it's filled with the practical working out of faith and saying you have to take care of somebody that's in need. You have a responsibility to do this. It's a, it's a biblical theme. So the judgment of God then has to do with bringing the people into an awareness of our need to be sensitive to social issues. Not in spite of our evangelical Christianity, but because of our evangelical Christianity. You know, the, it's really a sad thing that, that, that social issues has, have become the domain, the domain of liberal Christianity there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that anything like that. In fact, it's a shame, it's to our shame that we ever let uh, such a thought come to our minds. If you turn to Psalm 10, you, you, I want to show you something there. Verse 1: Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In other words, he begins with a prayer and, and asking God to draw near to people who are in, in difficulty. And here's the answer: verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the devices they have planned. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire. He blesses the greedy and despises the Lord. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek God. God is not in in all his thoughts. His ways are always prosperous. Your judgments are high and distant from him as As for all his enemies, they scoff at him. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved for generations. I shall not meet adversity. In other words, this is the rich man now talking and he's saying no bad thing will ever come to me. He says, I don't care about my enemies. I don't care about the poor. Look at verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes lurk against the unfortunate. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor, drawing them into his net. He crouches. He lies low so that the unfortunate fall by his strength. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. Forgotten whom? The poor. God doesn't, he's saying, he said in his heart, God doesn't care about the poor. Therefore, I can do anything I want to them and get away with it. God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see it. You know, in Southern Illinois, there is a museum, sort of a historical site. It's been, they've created this out of an old house. that's right on the border of, Southern Illinois, right there on the river. The house had been owned by a man who was involved in a devilish, wicked, evil traffic. You see, runaway slaves would make their way across the river seeking freedom. And, and this man had slave catchers that would position themselves on the northern side of the river, and they would have these lights out there at night when they when the runaway slaves were trying to get across the river to find freedom. And and they would call out to those runaway slaves as they swam across the river, and they'd yell, they'd yell out, Come on, come on, you're you're almost here. You're all you're nearly free. Come on, swim this way. Here's a light. Swim to the light. And then as soon as they came to shore they would throw manacles on on them and they would knock them unconscious and throw them in the back of a wagon and then cover them with a tarp now this man's house was built sort of sort of like an upside down horseshoe where it had this opening in the in the middle and, and it, it was made in a way so that the wagon could then pull into the house uh, right up inside the house and they would they would roll that wagon up in the house and then they would they would close the doors behind it and the doors uh, uh Uh, uh, to the outside of that that wagon entry, they, they were made to look exactly like the siding of the rest of the house so that they could hide the wagon and hide the entrance. They would get them in there and there was a trap door that they would then slide open above the wagon and they would slide that door open and then those slaves would be lifted right up into the slave quarters that were built into the top of the house. It was just a gruesome place. It was horrible beyond anything you could imagine in your life. This part of the house was just divided into tiny little cubicles of four or five, uh, uh, four, excuse me, five or six feet across and, and, and it was just gruesome with, you know, chains, uh, hanging from the walls, bars to keep them from escaping, just horrible, horrible place. And then, under the cover of night, they would take these runaway slaves and they would resell them, and they would they'd be, they would be taken across the border to the southern side of that border and shipped back into slavery again, thinking thinking that they were almost free. Think after all the travel they had endured, after the journey to get away, thinking that they were safe. And all of that lost in the last moment when they were taken back across into that horrible bondage. Now the family living quarters was downstairs, and it was right underneath the slave quarters. This is where the man raised his sons and his daughters. There's there's a beautiful little spinet piano in there. There's he it has beautiful furniture in there, and there was nothing separating this his this nice decent American family from the nightmare of the slave trade uh, 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 above him, but the floorboards of the, of, the, of the slave quarters. I can't help but wonder if there weren't some moments when he and his family were standing around that spinet piano singing along and then the moans and the groans and the screams penetrated the floorboards. If you in that house, there's a little glass case, and in that case, you'll find a thank you letter written to this man from the great Anglican and later became Methodist preacher George Whitfield. Now, Whitfield had stayed in this man's house at some point in time, and he thanked him in this letter for his hospitality. The man had so thoroughly defrauded Whitfield. That he made him think that he was an anti-slavery, religious, spiritually-minded man. And in the letter, there's a reference to the fact that this man had given $5,000 to oppose slavery. Can you imagine the curse on this man's head? Can you, can you imagine the horror that this, this damnable, wicked hypocrite wrote out a check for $5,000 to an abolitionist preacher and sent him on his way, knowing that above the floorboards over his head was the curse of, of his own hellfire? It's stunning. And yet, I think that there are times when we're just as mindless and as careless and as thoughtless and as callous and as hard-hearted toward social injustice and evil in our day as he was. You know, probably that man, by that stage, he had so totally deceived his mind that he had lost track of where he really was. He had separated himself intellectually from the evil that was going on, and he was living in sort of a spiritual schizophrenia. But God says he will judge for the poor, he, he will judge for the oppressed. He will arise and bring justice on their behalf. And when we act against the lowest elements of society, when we, when we act out of racial prejudice, when we act out of religious pride, when we separate ourselves from God's love of justice, I tell you, we bring God to ourselves as our judge and because God is on the side of the poor. We are answerable for the social welfare of our generation. Now, I'm saying, I want to say this. I've said all this. I am not trying to make a political statement. I could care less about the politics of an issue. I'm not, uh, I'm not talking about how uh, different political parties have, have, uh, have grabbed onto these ideas and hijacked them and used them for things. I'm not talking about any of that all, at all. However, I am saying that we each individually We have a responsibility before God to do what we can to serve those who are suffering in our society. You know, when I say that, here's what I know happens. I know what happens is, especially now in our culture, because all the information in the world is at our fingertips. All the suffering of the world is on our computer screens every day. And we look at all this and it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's easy for us to look at it and say, God, what in the world could I do to make a difference? And it's and it's so overwhelming that it's easy for us to, to just, just, it's like a tidal wave washing over us, and we, we end up doing nothing because we're paralyzed because of the, 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 the overwhelming nature of the need. You know, the truth is, if you're like me, you see so many people hurting, and and you, you wish, it with, it, to the core of your being, you wish that you could do something for all of those people that are suffering and that are hurting and that are in need. But if you're also like me, you just don't have the resources to do that. anybody Anybody in that like that? Well, in that moment, it's important for us to remember simple piece of wisdom that I heard. Actually, the first time I heard it was Andy Stanley when he was talking about these kind of issues. Here's the wisdom. Here's what we have to remember. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. You can't do it for all. But you can do for one. You can make a difference for one. You can touch somebody's life. And so instead of being paralyzed by the overwhelming need that's out there, look around and say, okay, Lord, I can't touch everybody. I can't change the world. I can't can't, uh, meet the needs of everybody all over this world and all over this nation. I can't do it, God. But if you'll show me one, I'll do what I can. That's what he calls for. You know, turn to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. This psalm continues the theme of justice for the poor and oppressed. It's a, it's a very brief little psalm. It's not a psalm of David, but it was written by David's chief musician, Asaph. He wrote this. This is a very interesting passage. He says, God stands among the divine, divine counsel. He renders judgment among the gods, small g. How long will you all judge unjustly and accept partiality of the wicked, selah? defend the poor and fatherless vindicate the afflicted and needy grant escape to the abused and the destitute pluck them out of the land of the hand of the false they have neither knowledge nor understanding they walk in dark darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken i have said you are gods sons of the most high all of you but you shall you shall but you but you all shall die like men and fall like a man o princes arise o god judge the earth for you shall inherit all nations now in this brief little power-packed psalm there's there's one of the most misquoted misunderstood and misapplied passages of scripture in the, in the entire charismatic uh contemporary charismatic movement and it's in verse six when when he said i have said you are gods now now listen to me I, I, if you, i'm going to put it in the context for you and it may turn maybe 95% of what you've ever heard, taught or seen, written about this verse of Scripture upside down, or I like to say right side up. Because only by taking it out of context can you make it mean what many teachers today are trying to make say that it means. If you take the phrase, you are gods, out of context... That can be a highly elevating influence, right? And, And it can introduce into us a spirit of pride and arrogance into the religious community that will undo us, but only if we take it out of context. In context... Look at how it begins. He says, verse 1, God stands among the divine counsel. He renders judgment among the gods, small g. That's God saying, listen, I am your father. I'm God. Therefore, you're my children. Therefore, you're the sons of God. You're the daughters of God. He says, I made you in my image, and I love you. I stand among you, and I'm going to judge among you. And that's a very elevating verse of scripture. Do you see that? But then watch what he says, because then comes the hammer blow. Verse 2. How long will you all judge unjustly and accept partiality of the wicked? Selah. In other words, will you do that which is wrong and approve of those that do that which is wrong? The hypocrisy. I tell you, take the hypocrisy that's in the American political system so many times. The system that will pass a law that locks a drunk up in jail, throws that person in jail, and, but then elects a liquor baron to, to uh, public office. You, you see the hypocrisy of it? You, you see what I'm saying? He's saying, how long will you go on approving of those that do unjustly? You know, it's, that would be like voting against abortion, abortion and then electing an abortionist as governor. He says, you want to be my children And yet you approve that which is patently unjust. Then he says in verse 2 again, defend the poor and fatherless, vindicate the afflicted and needy. Excuse me, that was verse 3. Verse 4, grant escape to the abused and the destitute. Pick them out of the hand of the false. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. You know what he's saying? He's saying something has gone wrong. He's saying the race of Adam for which I had destined such great things has lost its way. The whole course of the foundation of the earth has slipped on its cables. Something is wrong. And then that brings us to, to verse 6. I have said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. But you all shall die like men and fall like a man, O princess. You see... That, that verse of scripture that says, I have said you are gods without verse seven, it makes no sense at all. He says, okay, so you, you want to be gods? Well, I'm the God of gods. He, he says, you want to be kings? Okay, you're kings, but I'm the king of kings. Oh, you want to be lords on the on the earth? Okay, fine. You're lords on the earth, but I'm the Lord of lords. You're, you're mighty people? Great. Oh, that's wonderful. But I'm the mightiest of the mighty. You want to be on, on top of the world? Fine. You can be on top of the world, but I hold the world in, my, in the palm of my hand hand therefore he says i will judge among the mighty see we have to understand god's case against society and his claim here now it's important for us that we don't leave it at the social level when we talk about this and that's where i believe liberal liberal religion has gone wrong by leaving the idea of judgment and sin only at a social level, believing that sin was only something that was done done out there somewhere, you know, only uh, some vague they that do something, or only some inappropriate social action, and it never had to, it's, you know, it's all about the government and society and culture and standards, and it's never have, has anything to do with me personally. So let's bring this idea of the judgment of God home personally. Uh, First, turn to Psalm 43, and you'll see how the the idea comes to a personal uh, idea of God's judgment. The psalmist said in Psalm 43, Judge me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and unjust people. You are my fortress, O God. Why have you rejected me? Why must I walk around in mourning while the enemy oppresses me? Send your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling place. Then let me go to the altar of God, to God, my highest joy, and I will give thanks to you on the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you discouraged, my soul? Why are you so restless? Put your hope in God, because I will still praise him. He is my Savior and my God. So so look at verse 1. He says, judge me, O God. Now, does he mean that in the way that we think of judging? Is he saying, come on, God, now be the judge. You're, you're the judge of all the universe. So now in your black robe and your white powdered wig, judge me and condemn me. You know, No, 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 not at all. Such a thought would never enter into the psalmist's mind. What is he saying? He is saying, God, be my champion undertake for me, judge my case, vindicate me, deliver me out of the hand of the wicked. He says, I feel oppressed. I feel surrounded by those who would do evil and get ahead of me. Does anybody understand the the psalmist on this? He says, says, I feel like I've done the right thing. I, I feel like I've obeyed the law. I feel like I've been a good person and the nation around me has gone mad with sin and the sinners are all getting ahead. You ever felt like that? The rich are getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Oh, God, rise, arise for me. Plead my case. Be my judge. And that takes us back to Psalm 7 where we started. It, 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 psalm 7 is a very provocative psalm. If you look at the subtitle before verse 1, it says something very unusual there. It, it says, A Shigayon of David which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite. Now, that's very, very interesting. That's very provocative there for several reasons. First of all, you look at the Hebrew word with which it begins, uh, shigayon. Now, it's not perfectly clear to us today what that means. It's, it's not perfectly clear. There is a way in which it can mean stringed instruments, so a song to be played upon stringed instruments, there's another way in which it can be translated to mean wandering. There's another way it can be translated to mean without purpose or confused. What could it possibly mean then? Well, it may well mean it's just strictly that the psalm was designed to be accompanied by stringed instruments that David saying Only play this on lyres and harps and banjos. I'm sure they had banjos back then. I'm pretty sure about it. It may well be, though, that this this is a confused ode, that this is not a disciplined poem. This is not a typical structured psalm of David. This is the outpouring of a man's soul that comes up out of the inside of his innermost being. I wonder if any of us can identify with David when he says, I'm going to write this psalm right up out of the core of, of my being and therefore he says it emanates from the point of the confusion and the point of the turmoil with which i'm dealing right now at this moment right here right now right th- at this moment on this day i'm dealing with things and i'm just going to write them down sort of a stream of consciousness thing so he's saying it's not going to make a lot of sense it's not going to make complete sense maybe he just tells us right off the bat this is a shig this is going to be an ode that's written in confusion because I'm confused. Now we don't like that. We don't like that in our biblical champions because we want them to be perfect. You know, we, we bring our, we bring ourselves under needless condemnation when we are experiencing turmoil and confusion and doubt and sometimes even moments of unbelief when we ourselves are in an ode to confusion. We bring ourselves under needless condemnation because we say, oh, David never felt these things. David never struggled with confusion. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. You know, I don't know about you, but it just, it thrills me to know that David was thoroughly confused from time to time because that gives me hope for my life. You know, Martin Luther, he called these seasons of crisis or seasons of struggle. And he wrote this in his journal. I really like this phrase. He says, there are times when I feel like I'm burning down. You ever felt like that? When you know you're a Christian, you, you know that you're saved. You know that if you died you'd go to heaven, but there are things, there are events, there are circumstances that are just boiling around you and they and they put your soul into such turmoil that you actually doubt your salvation. If you've ever been there or if you're there right now, I want to tell you something right now, saint, listen to me closely. It's okay. It's all right. I am here in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth under the authority of the Holy Scripture to give you permission to go through some times of crisis in your life. It's okay. doesn't mean you're not saved. doesn't mean you're not sanctified. It doesn't mean you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith. It just means that you're as human as King David was. It's okay. You know, I really like the reality of this psalm. There are times when... David just flails out at God. You know, we, we sometimes just pray such sissy, prissy prayers. You know, people in deep, deep soul turmoil. I mean, at the worst moment of their life. I've been in funeral homes. I've been in, in nursing homes when, when I knew that people were, were grappling with their bare hands to get hold of their souls. And you bow your head to, pray, to have a prayer with them and, and they pray the most meaningless, fruitless prayers. Oh God, we thank you for this moment. We just praise you, oh God. Sometimes I just want to grab them and shake them and, and say, come on now, get real. I know that's not how you feel right now. I think there are times when it's perfectly okay to go in the back room of your house and slam the door And say, all right, God, I'm really angry with you right now. Because God can handle it. God can handle it. Now, I don't suggest you try that with your wife, brethren. But God can handle it. God can handle it. The wonderful thing about God is that he'll just let you lash out. At him and just yell and cry and say, oh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't like you very much right now. But then when you're all finished and you're all uh, done with your, with your moment of, of lashing out at him, he, he'll look at you and say, yeah, but do you still love me? And you say, yeah, I'm sorry. He says, that's okay. You see, God can handle it. Look at Psalm 7 again. There, there, there are times when David was just in such confusion. I don't want to point one, one word out to you. Look at the being, beginning of Psalm 7, uh, starting with the first five verses. Now, we don't know the circumstances under which this psalm was written, but you, you notice we just read, it was a shigayon, it says, concerning the words of Cush, the Benjamite. Now, now we don't really, we don't really know what the circumstances are here. We don't know what the situation entails Is Cush a friend of David's? Uh, Evidently he was. Maybe he went to Saul the king and he accused David of treachery. Maybe he played to Saul's paranoid fears. Maybe he betrayed David in some way. David goes on and he says, "O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in the palms of my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have delivered my adversary without cause. He says, he says, in in, in fact, Lord, I, I helped deliver him when he was in trouble. And now he's my enemy without cause. Verse five, he says, if I did hurt him, if I did persecute him in any way, He says, then may the enemy pursue my life and overtake me. May my enemy trample my life to the ground and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Look at me, God. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. You see the the self-righteousness. You see the almost a smug uh, self-righteousness and the self-defense in that Look at me, God, this guy is doing this to me and I don't deserve this. I haven't done anything to him. If I hurt him in any way, then by God, I hope he kills me. He just rails out of God and rails out at his friend. It goes on from there, verse six. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up because of the rage of my adversaries and awaken yourself from me. You have commanded justice the congregation of the people surround you. Return above it to heaven's heights. The Lord will judge the peoples. Grant me justice, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Now, now look at the second temptation in this passage because it is the temptation for self-righteousness. I I stand on my own righteousness. Verse 8, he said, the Lord will judge the peoples. Grant me justice, O God, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me now now we have to remember we have to constantly remind ourselves in the face of injustice that's done being done to us that that we cannot appeal to God for justice based on our own righteousness David David comes to God and he says God according to my righteousness that is th- that is in me th- according to my integrity arise and judge for me now we have to cut David a little slack here because I, I, I don't think uh, what he's doing here, he is, he's struggling through some stuff. There's no doubt there, but he's also, he's talking about an isolated case. Let, let me a, give you an example. You're, you're accused of a falsehood or some deception or some cruelty or, or some untoward motive. So the accusation comes against you. Okay, you're not sinless. We all know that. You're not sinless, but you have not done this thing. This is unjust against you. Therefore, David, that's what he's saying. He's saying, in this manner, I am without fault. So you have to isolate the situation, isolate the circumstance and resist the temptation to self-righteousness and smugness and not to say, oh God, you should should vindicate me, you should judge on my behalf because I'm such a good guy. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying, God, I have not done this. I, I, I am innocent in this. Verse 10, he says, my defense depends on God who saves the upright in heart. You know, when there are accusations made against you, if they are false, no matter what the people say, they cannot fool God. When all the the accusations of the world have been shouted and shouted back at each other, God will finally have the last word. If we can just wait, if we can just wait, justice will be served. Therefore, when the accusations are coming hot and heavy, first of all, make sure that they are unfounded. And if they are not unfounded, even if you get off the hook, you will not beat the rap. You may convince everybody in the world that you are innocent, but in the final analysis, the sin Will be made manifest. That which was hidden in the dark places will be broadcast from the rooftops. Rooftops. Convince everybody in the world that you are innocent. But if you are guilty, I promise you, God will announce it in the last days. You you cannot hide sin. Why, why even try? Why do we even try to hide sin? I, I believe that sooner or later, God will drag all the dirty laundry out and we, and wave it from the rooftops. So. So here's what I'm saying. If the accusation is true, then humble yourself and accept it. Humble yourself and accept it. And if it's untrue, even if they send you to jail, God will finally have the last word. Appeal to the righteousness of God. Now, when we we talk about these issues, the question that comes to mind is, what about the New Testament admonition to love and to forgive? Because you don't see a lot of that in some of these words. Turn to Psalm 137. For one of the real problem psalms of the whole Bible, these, these judgment psalms are, are the most difficult for us to understand with our New, understand, our new Testament understanding of forgiveness and grace. Now, now this one, Psalm 137, is not a psalm of David. It's much re- more recent than that. It was written long after David had died. It was written following the captivity of Israel in Babylon. So let's read it together, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the poplars, for there our captors made us sing, and our tormentors made us entertain, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill." If I do not remember you, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not have Jerusalem as my highest joy. Now, now watch this. Listen to what he says. Remember, O Lord, the people of Eden, Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it down to its foundations. Oh, daughter of Babylon, who, who is to be destroyed? Blessed is the one who rewards you as you have done to us. Blessed is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rocks. I mean, that is a very difficult passage of Scripture for us to read and try to square with what the New Testament teaches. I mean, whatever happened to turn the other cheek, right? Right. Whatever happened to forgive and you will be forgiven. Where is this psalm coming from? Is this an Old Testament psalm that's that's just not at all reflective of New Testament reality? Well, we have to isolate the words and look at them. The writer of the psalm is dealing with a specific issue. And he's saying God will bring justice. Babylon destroyed Israel. The Edomites in alliance with Babylon raised Jerusalem. They burned it to the ground. What he's saying here, he is not saying that God will be happy when Babylon is destroyed. He's not even saying that he will be happy when Babylon is destroyed. Look at what he says. "O daughter of Babylon, who is to be destroyed, blessed or happy is the one who rewards you as you have done to us. He's reminding them of the momentary happiness they had in the demonstration of their military power. He's saying, do you remember how it felt when you rode through the streets of Jerusalem? Do you remember how it felt when you burned down our houses? And when you, when you stole all, the, all of the gold out of, out of Israel? When you carried off our women and our children? When you killed the men? When you hanged them from the gallows? When you pulled down the walls? Remember how you felt proud and arrogant and mighty? Somebody is going to feel the same way when they do it to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the same sense of military prowess that you demonstrated will be visited upon you. It's it's the same thing that might have been said when Nazi Germany plowed Poland under. Some, you know, using this example, some prophet of God might well have been standing, may, may well have stood at the gate of Warsaw and said, remember how this feels. Remember how this feels when you're loading people up in boxcars and carrying them off and burning Warsaw to the ground and destroying the ghetto and killing the Jews and sacking the temples and destroying the homes and carrying off the businesses. Remember how this feels because the Warsaw Pact is coming and, and one day it's going to plow Germany under just like that. And let me tell you, when the Russians took Berlin, man, did they rip Berlin asunder. It's a kind of an ultimate political and historical justice that's being dealt with here. But, but there's a balance here, isn't there? Think of James and John, the New Testament. When the, you remember when the village rejected the gospel of Jesus? What did they say to Jesus? Anybody remember? They said, you want, me to, you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? They, say, they were saying, hey, Jesus, let's just kill him. Let's just wipe him out. And Jesus replied, he says, listen, you don't know what kind of spirit you're, you're speaking from right, right now. You don't know what spirit you're of. On the other hand, what about Revelation 6.10 in which the, the blood of the martyrs cries out from underneath the altar and says, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, that that's another th- thing that You see, that that cries out for ultimate justice. It's that thing that says, God, what about people that kill millions of people and just seem to get away with it? People like Stalin. What about the people that destroy nations and just walk away unhindered? God, prove your ultimate justice in the universe. And it's between these two tensions that we stand. On the one hand, we cannot handle the weight of personal unforgiveness. If you sin against me and I do not forgive you, it will destroy me. On the other hand, the Bible never calls us on us for the kind of namby-pamby, sissified, half-hearted religion that says, Oh God, just bless Adolf Hitler. No, you see, there is a way in which God's righteousness and his judgment must be vindicated in an ultimate sense. And there is a way in which our champion, our judge, must come. He will come and he'll judge. Now we're not going to stand before him in our own righteousness. God, judge me according to my own integrity. God forbid. I don't want that. We're we're going to plead the blood of Jesus, and we're going to rise to meet him in blood-washed garments. However, there's another way in which we say, come, God, and set this thing Right. Come, God, and make it right. Restore the universe. Restore a new heaven and a new earth. Rebuild it. God judge these people that do these horrible things. You know, um, you've heard me talk a lot about Dr. Mark Rutland. He told a story one one time about a, a trip that he and his team took to Ghana in Africa many years ago. He went to preach one time in this small village. And they arrived in that village just in... At the time when there had been this big trial there, a man had been, had been caught red-handed with a sack that had his nephew's head in it. That's, that's what I said. Some of you took a double take there. He, he was caught red-handed. He had decapitated his nephew and taken his head in order to use it in some sort of witchcraft, uh, witch, w- witchcraft ritual. And they caught him red-handed with a sack with his nephew's head in And he had bribed some of the officials and the judges, and he had gotten off with something like a six-month suspended sentence or something like that, carrying his nephew's head in a sack. And Dr. Rutland and his team arrived on the day when that sentence was passed down, and the man walked out of that courtroom, a free man. Oh, the people that were in the church where he was speaking, they were just Outraged. They were just screaming and bellowing. And, and Dr. Rutland, not knowing what was going on, he said, what's happening here? And they, they told him the story and they said, he got away with it. He got away with it. He said, no, he didn't. They said, you weren't here. He got away with it. He said, no, he didn't. And they said, oh, you Americans, you always think that everything's going everything's to come out right. They said, he just got off scot-free. He said, no, he didn't. They said, yes, he bribed a judge. He's never going to stand trial. He said, yes, he will. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. He has eluded justice. He said, no, 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 he hasn't. He has only delayed it. There's a way in which we need to see that historically. There is a way we need to, in which we need to see that uh, politically, even uh, looking at the world around us. There's a way in which we need to see it personally. When evil is done to me, I need to be able to say, God, I'm going to put this thing in your hand in the ultimate sense, in the final analysis, I believe that you are going to judge for me when, and then when I have done evil, then I say, oh God, I need to get this right. God, I need to get this right before you because uh, right now, because if I, if I, if I don't if I don't do that, if I, if I elude justice here on this earth and then have it shouted from the housetops of the great white throne, I mean, wouldn't it be a horrible thing if we all stood at the judgment seat of Christ and he said, you, Hoskins, away from me. I never knew you. God forbid. What if he looked at you and said, you, work of iniquity, out. God forbid. How horrifying. On the other hand, what if they come and haul me off to prison in the morning? And they write, all manner of evil against me. And they put it in the commercial appeal. And it's all over every television station in the nation. And they lock me up in chains. And they accuse me of every, every kind of terrible evil in the world. And then you all turn on me. And you all hate me. And, and you all curse my name. And you all curse the, the day that I was born. But then at the final judgment, God says, come, beloved of the Father, enter into my joy. And you would say in that moment, wait what wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute minute. this guy is a stinker what's the matter with you god don't you read the newspaper and he would say no no i don't let me close with this i think it's really an appropriate time to teach a lesson like this due to the times in which we live Because all over the world, you know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering for the cause of Christ. There are men and women of God that are pouring out their lives as missionaries in nations all over the globe. What about it all? What then shall we say? Several years ago, back in the days when Muammar Gaddafi was ruling Libya with an iron fist, a missionary evangelist and his team was visiting in the African nation again of Ghana. They were traveling through northern Ghana and they stopped in this little uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators guest house. If you don't know who they are, Wycliffe Bible Translators, that's what they do. They translate the scriptures into uh, languages, every language that they can. They will, they will go and sometimes spend a lifetime translating scripture into native languages and, and they had people there, and they had this little guest house. It was just a little place where they could stop and clean up and stay overnight. And there, as, as, uh, as the missionary was standing in the foyer and he's talking to a, a native of Ghana, and there was a long hallway from the foyer that went down back to the bathrooms and back to the showers. And, and, and as he stood there, coming out, out from, the, from the showers, wrapped in a shabby, faded housecoat with thongs on her feet, Came an old, frail woman with her hand running along the rail of the hallway. And he said to the man with whom he was chatting, Who who is that lady? And the Ghanaian man just answered just in, in hushed tones, Oh, oh, that's that's Sister Ellsberger. That's Sister Ellsberger. He said, Well, who is she? He said, Well, she, she's a German missionary. She's on her way back to Germany. She came here soon after World War II. Now she's uh, contracted river blindness. There's no cure. She's on her way back to Germany to die. She only has a few more months to live. She's as blind as a stone. You see how she runs her hand along the wall as she's walking? Uh, she, She has no family, no friends, no money, no nothing. But, he said, she has translated the entire New Testament into two tribal languages in northern Ghana. He said, there are thousands of Ghanaians that can read the Bible in their own language because that little old lady laid down her life. She walked past them in the hallway, with unseeing eyes, staring off into the future, tracing her finger along the, the wall of the hallway, shuffling her feet. And that missionary just wanted to reach out and touch the hem of her house coat. A little while later, the missionary got on the plane to go home. He picked up the first English uh, newspaper that he had seen in weeks and weeks. He was eager for some news, and he picked up that newspaper. It was folded in half, and he opened it up. And as he looked down uh, uh, at that newspaper, on the front page, there was a picture of of Muammar, Muammar Gaddafi from Libya, and he, he had a ceremonial sword raised above his head, and, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people behind him cheering, and there were rifles raised in the air, and soldiers behind him, and it was an English language newspaper from Ghana, and the Ghanaian head of state at the time was good friends with Gaddafi, and, and, and they were just shouting their praises for Gaddafi on the front page of the newspaper, and it said, cheering throngs receive the hero of Libya. Thousands and thousands of people cheering with Gaddafi holding that sword over his head. And rage just just welled up inside that missionary. His throat filled up with bile and he said, look at this wretch, this heathen pagan sweeping across the stage of human history, this bloodthirsty killer terrorist, this gangster being cheered by thousands And that old lady is preparing to get off a plane in Frankfurt in two days and be met by a Wycliffe officer who's gonna take her to an apartment and let her die. Something in him just wanted to say, God, how long is this gonna go on? How long are the righteous going to be plowed under? How long are the saints of God going to go unsung while seething masses of humanity sing their praises for Hitler esque tyrants? Then sitting there on the plane holding that newspaper, he knew. His mind went back to the old old song, one of my favorites. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, the best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Then another verse says, Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. In the end, God will have the last word. In the end, God will have the last word. That is our hope. That is our peace in the midst of turmoil. That is the anchor that holds us when everything around us is is shifting sand or a raging sea. God will have the last word. Bow your head. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you that you will have the last word. And God, there there are some that are hearing this right now, Lord God, and they're in the midst of circumstances and turmoil. And and Lord, there's there's some that are struggling with doubt and they're struggling with fear and they're struggling even with with, uh, levels of unbelief in their life. And God, I pray that you would just let this begin to rise up within them, that you will be their judge, you will be their champion, you will be their deliverer, that God, that you will have the last word, and that no matter what is going on in their life, no matter what kind of unjust... Uh, ways that they're they're being treated that you god see you see it all and you have them in the palm of your of your hand and lord god in this life we will suffer persecution in this life we will have suffering and pain but god there is coming a day there's coming a day when all things will be made right and that lord god is an anchor for our souls And god i pray that you would let that be an anchor for those that are hurting tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to lift our eyes. Lord, we can't, we just don't have the resources. We can't do something for everybody. But Lord, help us to find one and to love that one the way that you love us. Because then, God, we know we can make a difference. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.